Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to this episode of the SG Engage podcast. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin with Blackboard. Capital campaigns, you're either in one thinking about one, wrapping up one, or maybe have one you'd like to forget. In any case, capital campaigns have been a tremendous asset to organizations, probably going back almost a century now. Um, And it's a topic that we want to explore in more depth on this episode of the show. And joining me to do that is Amy Eisenstein. She is CEO and co-founder of the Capital Campaign Toolkit. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm happy to be here. So maybe as context, let's start at the beginning. What the heck is a capital campaign and how does that compare to other types of fundraising programs that organizations typically run? Yeah, so I like to talk about capital campaigns as a once in a while campaign. And as you said beautifully in the intro, You know, I think these days, most organizations are either thinking about one, planning one, in one, or coming out of one. But realistically, there's an important distinction between an annual fund program and a capital campaign. And an annual fund, of course, is the funds that you raise day in and day out for your ongoing operations, for your staffing, for your rent or your mortgage for your programs and services. And the important difference in a capital campaign is it's something that happens once in a while, generally every 10, sometimes even 15 or 20 years, depending on the organization. And it's for those big long-term needs. So it might be a building, it might be program startup, it might be some endowment funding, Whatever it is, it takes your organization from where you are at to the next level of operations, the next level of services, how you're going to serve the community in a bigger and more impactful way. I think that's a really helpful way of of framing it, Amy. Like you said, there's short-term and there's long-term, and the short-term for most organizations would be their annual you know, um, giving or annual fundraising program that they run you know, on a calendar cycle or even a fiscal year cycle, but it's their tried and true cycle that they go through every year. And a capital campaign is is more long-term in nature. And typically there's a strategic priority or a strategic driver, like you said, could be programmatic, could be infrastructure, but it distinguishes, you know, we still need to do the, the day-to-day or the, the annual program that we're operating, but this is more long-term in nature and and typically has some very specific strategic objectives too. That's right. And since since you bring it up, whether you mean to or not, there's always a concern at organizations that a capital campaign will cannibalize an annual campaign or annual fundraising. And what we've found is that that simply isn't true. And yes, of course, you'll continue to raise money for your annual program while doing a capital campaign, But there are lots of strategies to be able to raise money for both simultaneously. 
And what we see actually is that organizations generally have an uptick in their annual fund during the campaign and especially afterwards. So if you're worried that a capital campaign is going to eat your annual fund, if you do it right, if you apply the strategies, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and I've heard that come up as well, which is organizations, sometimes it's the tyranny of the or, right? Oh, we need to do the annual or the capital? No, it's both. <laughs> like, we need to do this and that. And that, that requires some juggling, which is why there's a difference between the two. And I think, you, as you noted, plenty of research that says one doesn't cannibalize the other, although that's sometimes a a myth or a, a shadow fear that something like that is going to happen. Right. And the bottom line explanation of it is that people who are giving to your capital campaign really care about your organizations and your programs and services, and they don't want your ongoing services to go away while you try and grow to that next level. So they understand and support both capital and annual at the same time. And Amy, you've worked with a lot of organizations over the years on preparing for executing these types of campaigns. Can we try and answer or at least, you know, narrow the scope here? Oftentimes, you know, organizations are wondering, well, you know, how long and how big and how much and it does depend, but there's probably some things you identified over the years of some some key questions an organization really needs to answer, maybe starting with why, but yeah. to, to sort of hone in on, on starting a, a capital campaign. Yeah, so let's begin with the how long question I think you started with. So generally what we find is that most nonprofits can execute, plan and execute capital campaigns in a period of three years. We do want it wrapped up in 36 months. Otherwise, we do find that there's a drain on the staff, a drain on the volunteers. The only exception to that is really these enormous university campaigns, these billion-dollar campaigns that go on for five or seven or sometimes 10 years. But for the, the average nonprofit, for the vast majority of nonprofits, capital campaigns should take 24 to 36 months. That's really helpful, right? And because people hear about these multi-billion dollar campaigns, but those tend to be, while they're amazing, they're the outlier, right? Most campaigns are not that big. And so you don't have to plan like that. Like, I, I think it's helpful to say, no, it's it's 24 to 36 months. And so that's that's three years, right, of thinking about in that context. Right, that's right. The vast majority, I would say 90% of organizations and 90% of capital campaigns, maybe it's more than that, are, you know, probably less than $100 million and can be done in three years. Great. So part of that aspect is is time boxing, which is always helpful, helpful for staff to know how long are we going to be on this journey for, but also help for, for supporters and donors to have a context, um, especially if there's matching gifts or other things that are a part of the campaign for them to know, okay, how long is this going to be going on before they you know start to see um, the campaign goals wrap up, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So I think the second part of your question was about figuring out the goal. Is that where we were going next? I think so, yeah. All right, so let's go there. 
So the first step, generally what leads an organization to a capital campaign is a strategic plan or something in your strategic plan that talks about significant growth. A capital campaign really should be about getting your organization to the next level of service. So after you discover that you probably need a capital campaign because of your strategic plan, then you're going to list out your campaign objectives. And that is what do you need to do to, to satisfy, to get to your uh, strategic plan, right? To, to accomplish what you want to do. And so your campaign objectives are going to be anything from building a building to starting up a program, to hiring new staff, to having some endowment, maybe technology expansion, so uh, and capacity building. There's lots of things that could be part of your objectives. So you want to list out your campaign objectives. You're going to actually include some fundraising expenses in there. So I don't want to hear from anybody that you're expected to raise five or 10 or 20 times more than you normally raise without any additional staff or resources. So we do need to expand the fundraising capacity and have some fundraising money in there as part of the campaign objectives. And then you're going to total up the expenses or the cost of all of those expenses of the building and the renovation and the equipment and the technology and the program startup and what you want to raise for your endowment. You're going to total it all up and that's going to be your first working goal. That's the goal you're going to start working with. That may not be the ultimate goal that you announce publicly towards the end of your campaign, but that's going to be the initial goal that you start to work with and that you build your case for support around. And that is why people should give you that money. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. It, it sort of pulls together a bit of the the who, the what, the when, but I like the fact that you noted some of this is qualitative, but a lot of it's quantitative, right? What will this cost? Or if we want to endow this program, if we need to invest in a new facility or fix an existing one, we need to know the quantitative parts of that, right? What's that going to cost? What will it take us to get there? What's the investment look like? Not just, you know, sort of the 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 qualitative you know um, poetic sentences, but like the dollars and cents that we're really talking about here. Right, and at this early stage of your campaign, while you're still doing some of the planning and thinking about it, I really encourage you to to think big. This is your opportunity to expand your programs and services in a way that's really going to serve you for the next ten or twenty years. The thing that breaks my heart most is when I go into an organization after a campaign and see that a year later, they've already outgrown the building that they just built because they didn't dream big enough and they were too nervous to go really go for the goal. And so they scaled back the project and scaled back the project and scaled back the project to sort of the minimum that they thought they could raise. Um, and then all of a sudden, a year later, two years later, they're already in a jam because they've outgrown it. So at this early planning stage, I want you to dream big. If you want that Olympic size pool, put it in those plans. We can cut it out later if we figure out you can't raise the money for it. But now's the time to dream big. Yeah, I really like that. And it's also because when you're engaging with supporters, 
we're talking about gifts of impact and gifts of transformation. And so to engage those donors at that level, it's got to be, it's got to be about dreaming big to get them to say, wow, okay, I, I, I want to be part of that. I want to help make that happen versus a uh, meh. That, that, okay, I'm yeah. sort of with you. Yeah, that, uh, that's the right word to use. <laughs> Thank you for raising the word transformational. That's what it should do. It should change the way your organization functions. And so it should have a transformational impact on your community, on your organization, on the people you serve. And your donors and prospective donors should be excited by the vision. So it should be big. Amy, are there other elements you've found that are just essential? to be successful at a capital campaign? Yeah, so there, there's probably five. Some of them we've covered, I'll go over them really quickly, that I like to talk about in terms of elements of a successful campaign. One is the clear and compelling vision, right? It has to be compelling, and it's got to be clear to donors what you're doing. You want to have a strong volunteer leadership base. That can be in the form of your board. It can be in the form of a campaign committee but strong volunteer leadership. We want also, of course, a strong donor base. So we want donors who have been around for years or decades, if possible, supporting your organization at various levels. A passionate and committed staff and leadership is critical. And finally, an organized and effective plan. So those are the, the five really key elements I think the only other thing that I would add is that you want to have the possibility of success. And what I mean by that is that you do, once you figure out what your working goal is, and you're going to put it into a gift range chart, which we may or may not get into, but basically it's a table of gifts that talks about how many gifts you need at what gift size or gift amount you need to get to your goal. And you need to have donors who have the capacity to give those lead gifts in order to have that element of a possibility, a real possibility for success. So I think that's key as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the gift range chart because it's an example of we're going to go from the the hypothetical theoretical to the practical tactical really quick, which is, okay, our organization has a goal. Part of the capital campaign is we're trying to raise $30 million. You're going to quickly get to, okay, well, to raise that amount, you're going to need X number of gifts at this level, Y number of gifts at this level, Z number of gifts at that level, right? There's a, there's a way you back into that that gets into the sort of the practical feasibility of what you, what we will have to do in order to achieve that, and and those those gift ranges are also how you balance out. Um, you know, we're still going to do the annual program. This is in addition to it, and and this is what we're going to have to be able to do in many cases. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, I've heard over the years a lot of I don't know if it's uh, tribal knowledge old tales from days gone by of things like, well, you know, you need a silent phase. And in the silent phase, you need to raise one quarter of the total divided <laughs> by seven and multiply yeah. by pi. And can we talk about what you found works, doesn't, you know, that, that you've just found like, look, you can do all this planning, but there are a couple really critical things um, that you found from, from just seeing this many, many times before. 
Yeah, I don't know if you could hear me smiling through the microphone, but I love, you know, there's this sort of mystical, magical sensation around campaigns that only campaign consultants know these magic formulas, but, you know, we're happy to share them. And that actually is one of the reasons that I created the Capital Campaign Toolkit was to share some of these magical formulas that may or may not actually exist. But let's talk about what does and what what makes a campaign work and what doesn't make a campaign work. So some of the things that really lead to successful campaigns are processes. So the process by which you develop the case for support is an opportunity to engage donors. So if you just sit around in with your core committee of a few key staff members and two or three board members, but you don't bring in other donors to weigh in on and evaluate and give feedback for the case for support, you're missing an opportunity. And it's one of the important processes of the capital campaign that really makes it work. Um, you mentioned quiet phase, public phase, and I have to say, those are real. We want to raise, and, and you said a small number, a small percentage, but we actually want to see clients raising 60, 70, 80% of their campaign goal in a quiet phase before anything's official, before anything's publicly announced, before there's a press release, even before there's a campaign brochure. So you asked me what doesn't work when an organization, the first thing they do is create a bro campaign brochure. I know that that campaign is going nowhere fast because they think that by handing out a campaign brochure, they're going to raise these big leadership level, level gifts. And that's just not the way it goes. The campaign brochure is actually for the very end of the campaign in the public phase. Once you've had all those personal, private conversations with leadership level donors that you do in the quiet phase. That's really helpful. And maybe let's let's double click into that because I'm sure people might be wondering, well, you know, so why? Why is that? I hear what you're saying, but why? And my sense has always been there's so much human psychology at play here. And a lot of it has to do people want to be engaged and involved with things that are successful or on the path to success. They wanna be part of that. And one of the reasons why you need to raise a significant amount of the goal prior to telling the entire universe is because you're using that as a springboard to build confidence in, in other donors. But people need to see, wow, you're already 60, 70% of the way to the goal. Awesome, I wanna be part of that versus a, going out of the gates, we've raised 5%. We need your help to get the other 95%. Um, <laughs> call me when you're, call me when you're closer. Like, uh, you know, this isn't a Kickstarter project. Right, right. That's exactly right. So, you know, campaigns do have certain order and processes, the way things are done. One of them is that we raise the largest gifts first. We call it an inside out campaign. So we start with the inside people, the closest people to the organization and the campaign and the largest potential donors, because we know from creating that gift table or the gift range chart 
that if we don't raise those big, big gifts initially, we are not going to be able to raise the amount that we hope to raise. Yeah, you've um, got to put the big rocks first, right? Yeah, you really do. I mean, there's a myth in fundraising that if you need to raise, we'll start with an easy small number, but if you need to raise $100,000, that all you need to do is find 100 people to give you $1,000 each. But we know in fundraising that that is not the way it works at all. First of all, it's actually pretty hard to find 100 people to give you $1,000 each. So if you need to raise 100,000, it's much more effective to find 10 people, you know, one person that can give you $20,000, three people that can give you $10,000, and there from the first four gifts, five gifts, you've raised half the goal. That's how campaigns work. And so we have to go to these big big donors first and secure these gifts in a quiet private sort of way to see if the campaign's going to work. The good news is that once you've gone through that quiet phase and approached your largest potential donors and the people that are closest to your organization, you have a pretty good sense about whether or not you're going to get to your goal. And you have an opportunity before you've announced in a big public way or created that brochure or done a press release to adjust the plans and adjust the goal. So the worst thing that can happen to an organization an organization is that they have this big public announcement and then they never get anywhere close to their goal and they don't do the project. It's bad for the organization and bad for the donors for a lot of years to come. It's hard to come out of a failed campaign. And so we'd always rather, of course, see a successful campaign, even sometimes that, that could mean scaling back the project and that's okay they still get to do um, a big chunk of their project, even if it's not their dream project that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And of course, into all of this comes our our Italian friend, Vilfredo Pareto, right? 80% uh, yeah. of the results come from 20% of the efforts. But in capital campaigns, as in other types of fundraising, it's actually more stark than that, that likely 80% of what you're going to raise is going to come from could be less than 10% of the the donors you're driving from just because of how the, the numbers play out, right? That's right. I mean, we say that in in the vast majority of campaigns, your top 20 donors make or break your campaign. And that means that they could get you to 80% of your goal, your first 20 donors. Yeah, no, it's a great point. This is all helpful, but of course, we're recording this in 2020, <laughs> and we're, what's the phrase? It's, I keep wanting to not call it the new normal, but we're in a different, no. we're in yes. a different normal. It's so, not normal. Nothing is normal about this, but yes, I know what you mean. Where, what is the state of capital campaigns in the, in the COVID-19 world we're living in at the moment? And, and maybe where do people need to adjust course or, or expectations? Well, I have to say that, of course, there was a pause early, early on in the pandemic. But the reality is that we've found that most organizations, their case for support has strengthened during this pandemic. That means their need for services has increased. Their need for existence has grown. 
And so their need for a capital campaign is stronger than ever, their case for support. So there's a couple of things going on. One is we find that the organizations that have the courage to continue with their campaign are doing better than they ever expected they would be. And that's perhaps in part because of this strengthened case for support. I mean, they need the ser- to provide the services in a bigger way than they ever have before. But unfortunately, some of the competition has gotten nervous or decided to close up shop or whatever happened and has gone away. So to me, there's, there's an open lane for organizations that want to be brave and want to be bold to go, go, go. And the way that we're advising clients to determine how to proceed with their campaign is to go back and talk to those top 20 donors that can make or break their campaign. If the vast majority of your 20 donors say, go, we're with you, we're still in, then you go, go, go. If a lot of your donors are putting the brakes on, then you have no choice but to back it up. But it's not a, it's, it's not a few members of the board who are nervous, or if your staff are nervous, those aren't the people who should be making the determination of whether to stop or go or proceed gently. Yeah, they're not going to make or break it. Go talk to the top 20 donors. They're the ones who are going to determine how you proceed. That's really good advice. And to your point, you know, we did see some organizations pull back from a lot of their fundraising initially, not just capital campaigns, but other types of things. When we know that in in past, you know, episodic events, it's actually those organizations that lean in and keep asking, keep raising, keep doing things. In this case, obviously, there's a bit of a, you need a gut check moment to check in with those key vital donors to make sure you're on track. But then it's, like you said, it's the the perseverance here it can be pretty critical for organizations. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're encouraging our clients, of course, to go once they've had those critical conversations with those key donors. Amy, what are some other things that listeners can learn from the Capital Campaign Toolkit that might be helpful to them? So a couple of things. One is what we've done since the pandemic started is we've created an opportunity for organizations to create mini campaigns. We're calling them eight-week mini campaigns to raise $100,000 or more. And that's because so many organizations lost so much revenue due to the pandemic. And it's an opportunity to actually create a special little mini campaign around some of your COVID needs. Now you have to be specific and thoughtful and strategic. It's not just raising more general annual fund money, but why should donors give to you a special gift over and above their normal annual fund gift? And I think it's, you know, COVID has provided us an opportunity to say, look, we're gonna make lemonade from these lemons and we're gonna go out and serve our donors in a bigger and better, not our donors, our clients, our community, our constituents in a bigger and better way than we ever have before. And so um, we're gonna take this opportunity and rise to the challenge. Um, You know, I guess- That's great advice, absolutely. 
Yeah. I guess if there was one last thing that I, you know, that we're recommending to to folks is that, you know, we're thinking about campaigns and how we approach our donors and engage them in all new ways. And one of the really stark ways that we've been taking a very close look at is the way that organizations have traditionally approached feasibility studies to find out, to test their case for support and their working goal and find out if they can do a campaign the way they want to. And the traditional way is to send in a consultant to interview your top donors and community leaders to see what they think. Um, but what we've found is that there, while there are certain tried and true and tested benefits to that model, it's also a huge missed opportunity to engage your donors and build relationships with your donors early on in a campaign. And so we wanna challenge that model and flip the model and encourage people to think about how can we do that differently? And um, you know, we don't have time to go into the details now, but I think that there are creative ways to work with consultants and yet you go out and build those relationships with donors as you explore the opportunities for a campaign. Yeah, Amy, that's that's great sound advice. And maybe we'll do a future episode where we can maybe do a part two of, okay, I got the basics. I've got the fundamentals. I'm now into this. Now what might be helpful to uh, listeners as well? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. And again, let's uh, we'll maybe do a part two in the in not too distant future. I would love that. Great. That's it for this episode of the SG Engage podcast. This episode is brought to you by the letter C. What else would it be this time? Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>